Live from the WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York, on Thursday, Leap Day, February 29th, 2024. I'm Gianna Volpe. Northwell Health will seek regulators' approval to merge with Nuvance Health, another nonprofit health network, and embark on an expansion that would give the state's largest private employer a presence in the Hudson Valley in western Connecticut. Serena Triangle reporting on Newsday.com that Northwell Health President and CEO Michael Dowling and Nuvance President and CEO Dr. John M. Murphy signed an agreement earlier this week to form a new regional health system pending approval from the states of New York and Connecticut and potentially the Federal Trade Commission, the executive said. Formal applications haven't yet been submitted. If approved, Northwell Health would become the parent organization for Nuvance which has corporate headquarters in four hospitals in Connecticut, three hospitals in New York, in Rhinebeck, Carmel, and Poughkeepsie, dozens of primary and specialty care offices, and about 15,000 employees, according to Murphy. Northwell Health currently has 21 hospitals, hundreds of outpatient centers, and a staff of more than 85,000, according to its website. The merger would be a cashless arrangement since both organizations are nonprofits. Combination would allow the organizations to share insight on new technology along with clinical and administrative techniques. CEO said research shows mergers can benefit patients, although a number of other outcomes are also possible, including higher costs. Both CEOs said they envisioned upgrading Nuvance facilities, but it was too soon to assess what would be appropriate. Researchers have found evidence that consolidation among healthcare providers has led to higher prices without evidence of improved quality, according to KFF, a nonpartisan health policy research group. In other news, tough decisions lie ahead in crafting next year's budget. The school district's business official told school members, uh, school board members this week as the Riverhead Central School District approaches a fiscal cliff with the loss of nearly $20 million in federal funds. Alec Lewis reporting on RiverheadLocal.com that the school district is in a perfect storm where your your increased staffing is not going to align with funding. A quote from Interim Assistant uh, Superintendent for Business Marianne Cartesano, who said that at Tuesday night's school board meeting, the district has been using... $19.8 million of federal coronavirus emergency relief funds, which will expire at the end of the year, to supplement its budget over the last three school years. School district's budget, roughly $192 million, has been bolstered the last few years by dramatic increases in state funding, as well as those federal relief funds mentioned. The boosts have allowed the district to hire more teachers and implement new programs, but in next year's budget, the board must focus on stability. According to Cortesano, an interim hired after the resignation of both the former superintendent and former business official, the district has 177 more staff members than it did five years ago, according to Cortesano. The district needs, quote, to find a balance between what we can afford and what programs we want, end quote. Also in Riverhead, the Brookhaven NAACP will host a panel discussion of environmental issues, both past and present, 
has civil rights issues at the Suffolk County Historical uh, Society Museum in Riverhead. That's tonight from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. It's going to be called Environmental Justice is Civil Rights, Long Island Retrospective. Everyone's invited to join the discussion as members of the Brookhaven NAACP are joined with panelists from local interest groups discussing environmental issues from both the past and present. It's a free event, but seating is limited and registration is required. If you'd like, you can call the Historical Society to find out more and to get yourself all signed up at 631 727 2881. The extension there is 100. And finally, here in Southampton, the town is considering two land purchases in the village of Quag through CPF, uh, the Community Preservation Fund, that would preserve an exquisite point of land at the end of Second Neck Lane, where there's recent and ongoing development of several mega homes along the east side of the lane. Tom Gagola reporting on 27East.com that the town board held a public hearing this past Tuesday to talk about the parcels at 38 and 40 Second Neck Lane that are being offered to the town by their current owners. The 5.3-acre parcel at 40 Second Neck Lane is being offered to the town by Robin Jeffrey and the Jeffrey uh, 2018 Family Trust for $3.85 million, while the 38 Second Lane Neck, second, uh, second Neck Lane property, switch those around, at 6.3 acres is for sale at $3.8 million and owned by Penniman's Point Limited Partnership, also controlled by the Jeffrey family, according to town officials. The area, uh, according to CPF program manager Jacqueline Fenlin, is zoned as Village Hamlet Green, but the owners, she said, are just looking to preserve the wetlands and not have an active community uh, park at the contiguous locations. Fenlin told the town board this week that the land identified for preservation uh, will be utilized as a public passive park area. But is the town considering buying land that could wind up being a town-funded 7.65 million-dollar, 11.6-acre private park for residents new and old on Second Neck Lane, given potential access issues for the general public. The road is identified as private on a plaque that's mounted to a stone edifice at the turnoff onto Second Neck Lane from Montauk Highway. Very interesting. That is, that's a question uh, that, that perhaps the people... Ought to discuss staying in Southampton for the weather, um, looking like a mostly sunny leap day with a high near 39 degrees. Wind chill values between 15 and 25 degrees breezy with a west wind 18 to 20 miles per hour, gusting as high as 33 miles per hour tonight. Mostly clear with a low around 19 degrees. Great night for a fire. Wind chill between 10 and 15 degrees, northwest wind 8 to 14 miles per hour right now. It's just above freezing at 33 degrees. Uh, Rich Olson Harbich joining us uh, on the show, the North Fork's longest tenured winemaker and author of Sun Sea Soil Wine. 
As such, we've got, I did uh, Sun and Soil this morning. A lot of standbys that I love to stand by, including the track we're going to kick off with, which is uh, Louis Armstrong and Gordon Jenkins and his orchestra. That lucky old sun just rolls around heaven all day. We've got the Yardbirds. We've got Sunhouse himself, uh, Nina, etc., a local cover of House of the Rising Sun, as well as one of my favorite sun songs, The Beach Boys, uh, The Warmth of the Sun, as well as, geez, The Velvet Underground's Who Loves the Sun, uh, Smash Mouth's Walking on the Sun, Violent Femmes, Blister in the Sun, a lot of favorites of mine this morning. Uh, I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Satchmo and Gordon Jenkins and you, whoever you are out there. You are awesome, and you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM News You Can Trust, Music You Love. Up in the morning, out on the job. Work like the devil from my bed But that lucky old son Has nothing to do But roll around heaven all day Us with my woman Toil for my kids Sweat till I'm wrinkled in gray While that lucky old son has nothing to do but roll around heaven all day. Good Lord up above, can't you know I'm pining tears all in my eyes. Send down that cloud with the silver lining Lift me to paradise Show me that river Take me across And wash all my troubles away Like that lucky old son Give me nothing to do Roll around heaven all day. Good Lord above, can't you know I'm pining? Tears all in my eyes. Send down that cloud with a silver lining. Lift me. river take me across and wash all my troubles away like that lucky old son give me nothing to do but roll around
The Yardbirds, Sun is Shining, live on the Saturday Club, the 21st of May, 1966, leading us into the bottom of the hour in our discussion with Rich Olson Harbich about his new book, Sun, Sea, Soil, Wine. Very excited to talk about this, uh, this edition of The Heart Underwritten by William Riss Gallery. Good morning, Rich. Good morning, Gianna. Thank you for having me. When was the last time we saw each other? Uh, Obama's second inauguration. Yes. Because you had the wine that you were pouring for the inauguration. That's dinner? right. We had a, 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 a Merlot that was chosen to be uh, served at the inaugural luncheon, which was the first time uh, a New York wine was served at that kind of event for an inaugural luncheon, which I guess they have every... Snaps, Time. snaps, snaps. So we were very proud of that. I'm one of the one of the first types of vines that were planted out here, right? You said Merlot and and Sauv Blanc. Yeah, Merlot. Initially. It's uh, is long been a mainstay. It's one of the varieties that I think we do best, and it's what became, uh, you know, I think the the backbone of the East End wine industry over the last fifty years now. So. It's crazy. It's crazy that we're here. And, and you know, I really, I, I want to hear more about your time uh, really getting your hands dirty for Stephen David Mudd <laughs> while you were an undergrad at Cornell, right, back right. in the early 80s? Right. Well, he was the first, uh, that was my first job in a vineyard. Um, I uh, just walked into their office in Southhold and uh, David uh was uh, you know the second pioneer to plant grapes on the East End in 1974. Next to the Hargraves, I guess. Right, second the, the year after, and uh, he the muds never 
made wine. They never wanted to get into the wine business. They were farmers and growers, and their their business uh, revolved around installing and planting consulting for people who wanted to get into the wine business at that time because making the money you know yeah well, yeah, just, uh, I'm, well making, I'm making, I'm making it is a, farming i'm making a joke well well right yeah. it is farming and that's that is definitely uh you know then we get into the whole mother nature is the senior partner mm-hmm. discussion sure and the difficulties of really growing wine or growing anything yeah uh with with uh nature being your number one. And then, of course, we got to talk about Lyle Greenfield and getting started in the industry. Sure. Yeah. I feel like that was a really beautiful full circle kind of moment for you because uh, considering the bottle of wine you once shared with Nancy, that solidified the path you'd be taking. Yeah. Do you want to talk about uh, that part of your life? Yeah, sure. I mean, that was, uh, you know, uh, just circling back to the muds i mean like everybody else who who gets into the wine business in the united states really they don't come from a wine background necessarily they're not born in a vineyard um and so uh like myself we had to learn and we had to figure things out um but yeah my really for me when i was a young Man, I, I I never envisioned myself putting on a suit and tie, jumping on the Long Island Railroad, and going right. into New York City to to work. It just that wasn't appealing to me. I was always attracted to the outdoors. I was always interested in nature, how things grow. And you had a lot of familial familial connections to winemaking, right? I had some. It really wasn't. Out in the open, and it, it was wasn't like your really... Gra- your grandfather? Was it your grandfather? That yeah. Well, my mom was born in Germany in a, in a winemaking town. My grandfather on my father's side uh, came over here in 1912 and eventually got into the restaurant business, which then in the 1920s became a speakeasy business. Got it. Because that's what a lot of people did. My, my family were, as well. There was probably 800 to 1,000 establishments selling alcohol illegally right. in Manhattan alone. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's some connection there. But we weren't – that wasn't something that was, you know, put was, on a pathway it, for no, me. In it was fact, like it was, on the periphery. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I mentioned in the book that I put in my high school yearbook that I wanted to be a farmer. My, and you said and my mom, mom was My mom was like, what are you doing that for? Yeah, what did they you, were embarrassed? What, what did they think? They so w- they wanted me to be a doctor or uh, a lawyer or, okay. or, or a business person or uh, whatever. That wasn't like, something they we come to this country and then you want to be a farmer. <laughs> want to go back? Yes, yeah. that's beautiful. So uh, and that's where I am today. So yeah, what my second year, the um, first year uh, at Cornell, uh, I remember getting a bottle of wine from Herman Weimer and and. Uh, as I said in the book, I fell in love with wine and my wife at the same time. So beautiful. And it really was delicious. And something just clicked. Uh, and being in at Cornell in the Finger Lakes, there's a lot of wine being grown on the outskirts of the town along the Finger Lakes. Um, and so I got turned on by it. And I, I started to want to learn as much as I possibly could about it. You bust your buns for the muds out in the vineyard. Yeah. You end up over in Bridgehampton. Yeah. In the cellar with 
Herman, right? Yeah, well, Herman was consulting for us for uh, for Bridgehampton uh, for two years. That so. must have been so cool for you. Yeah, it was very cool. I mean, I had no idea uh, about the ins and outs of winemaking. My initial training was in agriculture, right. so uh, I knew how to grow so, grapes, and, 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 and I knew what they needed. So toward that end, and I, and I'm I'm gonna hop, I'm gonna hop ahead a little bit, and it's talking about how I love your winemaking philosophy which seems to be one intrinsically tied to the vintage itself. Uh, your advice to listen to the vintage or note about uh, one should never try to make a wine with a distinct style in mind for really comprehending uh, the vintage and, and tasting the fruit to see what it's capable of. Uh, how passionate are you about advising young and new vintners to, to get out in the, in the vineyard and, oh, and get involved in really growing wine uh, to inform their approach and attempts inside the cellar yeah i mean it it's a process that i i've had and and many of uh people like myself winemakers men and women uh it's a process that has to be learned um just like growing up when you're younger you you probably look to siblings older siblings for for how to behave what you're supposed to do then your friends and people that are surrounding you influenced you society does society influences how you behave how you act what are your manners um and i think the same thing is true for wine so you can try to make something that you believe should taste like something else but ultimately you have to be your own person mm -hmm. and you have to grow up to be your own person and be comfortable in your own skin and so the same trajectory, the same evolution takes place when wine, especially when we're a new area like this was 50 years ago, there was no blueprint. There was no guidebook right. to how to make wine. So we thought we, we had the stylistic um, um, models for us to follow because we were growing the classic grapes of Europe. That's why the East End became so successful and why it's become so important in the national wine scene. We're not growing uh, Native American grapes or hybrid grapes. Uh, we built the reputation on the European grapes, which at that time, 50 years ago, not many people were confident that we'd be able to do successfully on a mm. commercial level. So we have those models. We have the Bordeaux reds that we uh, that's we grow does, the that's same varieties. We, the best, right? we have Burgundian style uh, Grapes, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, um, you know, grape varieties from Alsace, mostly French uh, originating varieties. And uh, yeah, my my goal right now in terms of where I am at with my, my career and my winemaking um, uh, future is to educate as many young people as possible, and it's part of why I wrote the book because I wanted to pass along and share the information that I've learned. Yeah, that took a lot of time and effort, uh, and there's still more to learn. And it's accessible in that way. You know, uh, this is a great book for for folks who maybe don't know anything about sure. growing wine. Yeah, I didn't want to make it overly complicated. It is, there was I so get much there to sometimes. Learn. There's there's a yeah. little complexity there, but that's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah, no, that's me. There's something. There's that's something. Me. There's something for everyone. And in fact, uh, you know, the myth section 
you talked you talk about the cork shortage being such stuff that I learned. You know, uh, uh, information about sulfites and what uh, people seem to commonly misunderstand about them, which which seems to be everything, right. uh, including like the fact that uh, your dinner you'll probably uh, ingest more sulfites than if you're drinking uh, wine and you don't complain about getting a headache from, let's see, dried fruit, french fries, uh, prepared soup, soda, shellfish, maple syrup, pizza, crackers, yeah. <laughs> guac- prepared guacamole. Right. No. But it's, it's uh, you know, and, and how you tell people, oh, maybe it's because you were on vacation and you were relaxing and maybe it has something to do with the alcohol itself, which tends to give one a headache if you're not. Tends to. Uh, you're not hydrating yourself alongside it. Right. You're maybe going a little too far, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There's a lot of myths in the wine business around the hospitality aspect of wine, the appreciation of wine. Uh, people still are asking questions about sulfites. Mm-hmm. It has a chemical name, so it's. It's a and it's a trendy question flag for people, you know. But cause... you know, like I say, every well, I didn't say it. Daniel Patrick Moynihan said it. You can be entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts, right? And so that's what I try to and these, lay out in the book. And, and it can be, and and that can get it into a touchy topic where it's like, you know, you can present people with facts all day long, and some people are like, I'm gonna. Put that aside and believe mm-hmm. this instead. Yeah. Well, that's an issue that transcends wine <laughs> it, it, at absolutely. this point. Uh, absolutely. Uh, believing something doesn't make it true. You know, I loved – there was uh, Craig Ruling, my boss from Southampton Golf Club. He chills his reds mm-hmm. uh, about an hour before serving. And I was always curious about that. Uh, and then I learned from your book, uh, the pr- you know, that you're a proponent of, of cooling down one's reds. Uh, before serving about an, an hour before, right? Yeah, a lot of it depends on what your room temperature is. Got it. Do you have AC? Right. Uh, where are you living? Um, a lot of times we're serving red wine in restaurants that is too warm. Uh, 75 degrees is not what was meant by room temperature when they started to talk about room temperature. It was uh, cellar temperature. It was which cellar uh, a wine cellar is generally pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, like I mentioned in the book, it's fine if you're living in a Scottish castle, but room temperature <laughs> right. on Long Island in the summer, uh, you know, it might be, you know, you might be 75 degrees in your house, so you might not have AC, and you might have the wine on a counter, um, and so to I think they're they're a little bit more enjoyable if you just cool them down a little bit, even a half an hour. Yeah. In the fridge, uh, if they feel warm to you, and I think that's that's where they're supposed to be enjoyed. And and sometimes we enjoy white wines and rosé wines too cold as well. Like huh. They're really super cold, and you can't taste as much right. of these wines. So like forty five, well, fifty degrees. You open you open a bottle of wine and let it sit for for a bit to to open. Yeah, I mean that can work. Um, you know, it's better well, to pour I think it about out. That with red. Yeah, okay, it's better to when you just pull a cork out and put the bottle on the table. There's not enough That's air coming right. through that little right. opening. Right, right, of course. And so it's always best to uh, use a decanter. Right. 
uh, for wines that are maybe younger or older. Um, if you think about being in a bottle for 10 years or longer, it's kind of like you're in a you're in your house for 10 years and never went outside and it's stuffy and you get stale That's a beautiful, air. That is a beautiful metaphor. And it's so when you pour it out and let it sit, and so you could even do it in the glass. If you're, if you're hosting a dinner and you have the glasses on the table and you pour the wine out in the glass, if it's a red, if it has some age, when you first take it from the bottle and you drink it, it might be a little bit musty. It might be have some off odors and aromas, but you'll realize and you'll see it, and it's you can see it in real time that the wine starts to open up and it tastes really? different. And typically it'll taste better and softer and rounder and more fruit flavors will come out and develop. And um, depends how old the wine is. That, that window could be very small for something that's 20, 20 years old or older. It might last for only a half an hour and then it's going to start to decline. Um, so, so much to learn from this book. There's not a, you know, not it's, just, it's, it's like not an exact growers, science. It's like wine growers and, and, and those who enjoy wine. You know? Yeah, they're all we're all intertwined. The, the se- well, the section on scoring, it mm-hmm. made me realize that the, the game may be, maybe is due for a shakeup as the rest of our our culture and world has been experiencing. Can you talk about mm-hmm. why, in your view, uh, personal taste trumps score, as well as a bit about, like, for example, enologics and how companies like that uh, really kind of contribute to like a homogenization of of the tasting world. Yeah, that's definitely going on. Um, scores translate to money right. and sales. And so this is really something that was driven by the West Coast industry where um, there are companies set up to try to uh, basically engineer right, the perfect, wine into what certain tasters are looking line. for. It's kind of become somewhat passe, although it still goes on. Um, And if you're on the West Coast, you have a big name, you have to have a certain score to support the price point, which you have might be $200, $300 a bottle. And so it's really important that you try to- You're looking to protect that return and- and Develop that wine and you're creating that wine to fit that model. That's that's like the complete opposite of what I do. Right. I'm I'm letting um, our vineyard, our terroir, our natural elements, the climate, the soils, everything else that goes with the East End, the atmospheric salinity that we get. Um, that's what I'm kind of trying to guide in, through the winemaking process. By the way, where did terroirist manifesto come from? That is genius. Uh, that was my idea, but my oh. publisher didn't like it. Oh. I wanted that to be the title I'm of the book. I'm so glad you kept it <laughs> in some way. I had to read it, you know, twice. I was like, wait, what? Well, they and were worried I... people would get confused. And right. Really, you know, which so I was like, first, okay. Which, which when you, because uh, attention and how quickly we perceive, when you read, the first time you read it, you're, you, it, it gives, you have to take a second glance. But oh my God, brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and and I think that you know where we are. Uh, this is a good segue into what is the Long Island 
sustainable wine growing program? What it, what is it an answer to and and why? Well, sustainability as a concept, as a philosophy, uh, has been with us for a while. It really wasn't coined as a phrase, as a term, until the mid-'80s, um, and it has taken off since then, obviously, in all walks of life and business. Um, it boils down to a simple concept that is we don't want to foul our own nest. Right. That's really what it's about. So things that we can do to keep the land in, in a reasonably good condition while we're farming, while we're growing wine. I think the wine, uh, wine growing lends itself really well to sustainability because vines are like trees. They're planted. They could live for 20 or 30 years. We, you, you mentioned we still have uh, um, quite a bit of our original vines. We have some, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so we felt as a... As an industry on the East End, we felt that we needed to codify this phrase. We needed to define what it really means for people. It's similar to what the organic uh, movement went through in the 70s and 80s. A lot of people started using the term organic, organically grown, etc. There weren't at that time any regulations surrounding the term. Interesting. And the same was true and remains true somewhat today around sustainability. Um, we are trying, at least for our East End industry, we have to find what that means. So that it means something and it's not just something you can put on a, a bottle to right. raise the price, but that it, it, it really uh, oh, yeah, it right. means that you're, you're farming in a certain way. We're farming in a certain way. We're trying to use eco-friendly techniques. We're trying to protect the soil by cover cropping, by using permanent sod between the rows. We're trying to reduce chemical inputs. We're trying to limit nitrogen applications. Nitrogen runoff has been a big problem for the East End, um, and it comes from a lot of different sources, um, the majority of which are home cesspools. Right. And far and away, that is the largest um, right. producer of nitrogen in our surrounding waters. And now that's, that's affected our fishery. It's affected the scallops uh, to a certain extent. That along with hotter temperatures. Which we are definitely going to get into. Yeah. When I saw that you did your master's thesis on climate change, mm -hmm. I got very excited. And, and I want to, before we get into that, I got to say, it's like almost like I'm saying, because I'm going to ask it as a question, but I know what the answer is. How integral was Alice Weiss in putting together these Long Island uh, sustainability standards and, and uh, people like Alice. Yeah, I mean, Alice was, we couldn't have done it without Alice's input. And she had really started the push to developing a sustainable I'm not program. I'm surprised. Um, almost 10 years before we came out with Long Island Sustainable Wine Growing. So she's very passionate about the subject, very knowledgeable about the topic. Yeah. Um, and so she's still uh, working on the program, reworking some of the things. We're just in the middle of updating the workbook that our growers use. So, yeah, we couldn't have done it without her. Um, and the research that she's done in Riverhead for the, the industry has been 
extremely important because we've been able to identify varieties that could work. And just as important, we've identified varieties that definitely won't work very well. And a vineyard is a big investment. Yes. It can be anywhere from ten to $20,000 an acre, not including the land, but the establishment of the vines, the trellis system, etc., for three years before a first crop is harvested. Uh, so it's really important that you know that you're doing the right thing because right. it's like building a house. Uh, once you're done, it's really hard to, to change it. And, and of course... One ought to, or, or, you know, if one is wise, consider what's coming. So getting back to uh, your master's thesis on climate change and its effects on Long Island, and you did that in the 1980s, what's coming true thus far and what what perhaps is happening differently than you imagined it might? You mentioned the time frame having uh, been off from some of the research have they been more accelerated than previously imagined? Or what did you mean by that? Well, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I did this in uh, 1990. Oh, okay. Um, still, um, library work. No, nothing was online. There was no online. So I remember coming over to um, Southampton College, uh, Stony Brook, in the stacks, looking for research. And even then, I was kind of blown away by how much was published on this topic there were racks and racks and racks and yet and yet it was work. not something it was we were at least a decade from even talking about it right. really right so and uh or most people i mean i got to know a, a scientist at the uh goddard institute for space studies in manhattan who works out of columbia and anthony delgenio wrote a piece in one of the East Coast vineyard journals was called Vineyard and Winery Management's no longer published, but he published a piece about global warming on Long Island and what the possible effects were. This was like 1985, mm. 86, and he was spot on. Um, and I still, I'm still in touch with him. He's retired now, but uh, pretty much everything he said came true and everything I saw uh, with the exception, I think, of the um, the increase in sea level, which we haven't seen uh, as much, although we have had uh, more than a handful in the last couple of years of seriously high tide right. events. And so, including Sandy, by the way. But we've just, over the past few months, we've had very, very high tide events on the North Fork as well, where entire sections of roads are flooded over for right. a significant period of time. Um, storm surge seems to be where the, the, the big, uh, that seems to be the big bad wolf of the coming decade. Yeah. Hurricanes, storm surges. Yeah. So more, and if they hit simultaneously, right. then we have a Hurricane Sandy-like situation. Um, still... I think this is a process kind of like looking at a clock. You don't see it moving. We're not going to no. feel it moving. And the, ironically, right now, the, the fact that we have climate change occurring within our vineyards is giving us 
better wine right. at the moment. At the moment. For now. Yes. Because we have a little more heat. We have a little longer growing season. Grapes like that. Yeah. I, I liked the quote from Alice who was talking about, uh, you know, well, let's see if I can find it. Um, about, uh, let's see, from a purely f- selfish viewpoint, slightly warmer temperature, summer temperatures would benefit late ripening varieties. However, we all share the same concerns about how warmer temperatures affect all aspects of the environment, particularly the marine waters that moderate our weather so profoundly. My biggest concern is the potential for more frequent and intense tropical weather in the post-Berasian period, uh, adding to that her, her worries about uh, elevated ozone levels, which I guess leaf injury, is that like leaf roll or leaf, leaf curl? or uh, That's a, a disease. Ozone injuries are typically like spotting. Got it, it okay. Um, we haven't seen too much of that. When you get closer to urban areas, it's it's, it's more, more of, of an a issue. Concern. But yeah, that's 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 uh, a good quote, and it's it pretty much sums up where we are. We're we're not able to control the temperatures right. at the drop of a hat, and I'm not even sure we can control them going forward. I just I just think about I th- when I think about it from like an investment standpoint, I think about like if I were investing in land or um, investing in business. When I look at uh, 81% reduction of premium wine growing land by the end of the century, uh, you know, that's the type of long term, when, when I think of investments, I think of low risk and, and that type of long term uh, view. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like, for now, this is wonderful. And it is, but. Yeah, I mean, they call it climate, climate resilience. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we have. A lot of it has to do with all the water that surrounds us. Right. Um, it buffers everything, um, including climate change. Right. And um, I, I saw that uh, Ms., uh, doc, Dr. Del Genio yes. uh, talked about our uh, proximity to the water being somewhat of uh, a help to us, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's why cooling? we're here in the first place in terms of our, the, the wine industry. The surrounding water keeps us uh, warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer. And then the breezes that blow through all year long were one of the windier wine-growing regions in the world. Yeah. Uh, there's no place that's windier in the U.S. that grows wine, and very few in Europe. Uh, I think central France, Tour, for some reason, has a lot of wind, and then New Zealand, comes, I think, is windier than we are in terms of the average annual wind speed all year long, which here is about nine miles an hour. New Zealand's about 11. Most places on the West Coast are five to seven miles per hour, average annual. So we should, so, maybe, maybe we should change uh, sunniest, cut out from sunniest spot. Windiest. I don't think that'll South sell hold. as well. Southhold, the wind, the windy, the windy town. It's great in the summer. Yeah, yeah. But true. it also makes our winter feel colder than it actually is. I mean, this past week we've had some some nice wind. Yeah, like yesterday. Yes, and um, last night. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of the potential and the future, I think it's bright for yeah. us. I mean, it's not easy. We had there's so but much do you, development do you think pressure. About, but does it uh, does it affect the varieties you think about when you when you're planting new vines 
or, uh, you know, they're planting new vines at Bedell, uh, do you say, maybe we can consider this over yeah, no question. Over, over we just planted some more uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, which typically is has not been embraced as much uh, historically over the last fifty years. We've seen it not really get to its full potential on the East End in a consistent manner. I've made maybe even using it more to to blend. Yeah, or rosé. Um, I think that's changing, um, and we just put in three acres in uh, uh, on our Cory Creek property. We also know more about the clones that are available because when you talk about Cabernet Sauvignon vines, there are dozens of different variants of those Cabernet Sauvignon vines that are slightly different, have slightly different characteristics, and then the rootstock that they are grafted to can have different effects on that grapevine once it's in the ground. And so we know now there's a rootstock called Riparia, uh, which I've used quite a bit at Bedell, and we see ripening sped up with that rootstock. Huh. Those same, same varieties on older rootstocks that we used to use will not ripen as quickly as the ones that we have on the riparian rootstock. So, and then if you project ahead and you think about a longer season, yeah, all of this the, confluence the potential... of events comes together, and so yeah, we, we, you have to have one eye on today and another eye on the future with wine production because it's such a long game. Right, Rich. We we're sadly I could do I could do this for the rest of the show. We're gonna play. I can I'm stay play. here. This is nice. I here. would love. I would love. I would love that. I'm going to play some sunhouse. play some more yardbirds? Yes. No, I got I do have well, I could. I'm actually I'm actually going to go all the way back. This is Sunhouse. He's like a granddaddy of the blues. Let's do it. And um let's see that'll lead you into the NPR news break. My friend says sun going down right here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station. This edition underwritten by William Riss Gallery. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Rich Olson Harbich. The book is Sun, Sea, Soil, Wine, and it's out right now. Right, Rich? Thank you so much for having me Thank on you. and letting me talk about it. Of course, of course. We'll be right back. My back door someday I 
With Long Island local news on Leap Day, Thursday, February 29th, 2024, I'm Gianna Volpe on WFM. Democrats in New York adopted a new congressional map yesterday using their supermajorities in the state legislature to draw district lines that would improve their chances of winning the House majority in November, but not drastically. However, enough so that Kyle Hill, a former congressional aide from Port Jeff, dropped out of the Democratic primary for New York's first congressional district seat on Wednesday, becoming the latest candidate to suspend their bid to unseat Representative Nick Lalota, the Republican in Amityville. Laura Figueroa Hernandez reporting on Newsday.com that Hill's departure from the race came a day after former state Senator James Gogren, a Democrat from East Northport, announced he was withdrawing from the primary after a newly drawn congressional redistricting map split the town of Huntington into two districts. Craig Herskowitz, a former New York City administrative law judge who lives in Northport, has also suspended his campaign, the Democratic primary field in the 1st Congressional District, which includes the East End, is now down to two candidates, John Avalon, a former CNN political analyst who maintains residences in Manhattan and Sag Harbor, and Nancy Goroff, a former Stony Brook University chemistry department chair. 
Daniel Peter Fati has filed to run as a conservative. The primary election is scheduled for June 25th. In other news, Long Island lost more than 110,000 residents between 2017 and 2022, a trend fueled by younger Long Islanders fleeing for other states, according to a report released yesterday. While Long Island continues to have an interstate migration deficit of nearly 38,000 residents annually, those numbers are offset partially by a surge of New Yorkers moving to Nassau and Suffolk from other parts of the state. They're predominantly coming from the five boroughs, data from the U.S. Census and analyzed by the Long Island Association's Research Institute shows. Robert Brodsky reporting on Newsday. Dot com that a region's population can fluctuate from a host of factors, including the difference between birth and death rates and the balance of new immigrants arriving or departing. But domestic migration tends to be the most volatile indicator and one of one most prone to economic, social and political conditions. The interstate migration deficit is the difference between the number of Long Islanders leaving for other states or other parts of New York and the number of those relocating from those places to Long Island, quote, this is a tough place to operate a business and is a high-cost region for families, young professionals, as well as employers. That quote from Matthew Cohen, president of the Long Island Association, who added, quote, we hope this survey serves as a wake-up call and that policymakers enact new initiatives that are going to stimulate economic growth, expand the commercial tax base, and create good-paying, sustainable jobs for the future. The data magnifies a trend that's been ongoing for at least a decade. More Long Islanders are leaving for greener pastures out of state than people are choosing to relocate here. Individuals leaving the region to move out of the state are generally younger, less likely to have a four-year degree, and more likely to be unmarried without children and to have lower incomes than the median Long Islander. The states most are leaving for are Florida, Pennsylvania and North Carolina. I wouldn't have guessed Pennsylvania, Uh, but it's beautiful there. Seniors relocating to Florida and elsewhere in their retirement reflect a small portion of -of out-of-state movers, the report shows. And finally, Atlantic Marine Conservation Society biologists will provide participants with an inside look at AMC's Stranding Investigations program this coming Saturday between 2 and 3 p.m. at the Quag Wildlife Refuge. Presenters will define a stranding, discuss why marine mammals and sea turtles strand, and the required gear to properly respond to a stranded animal. They'll share what they've learned from the strandings over the years and how they're trying to improve the marine environment for all of its inhabitants. By the end of the lecture, participants will understand the proper steps to take if they should come across a stranded mammal Uh, marine mammal or sea turtle. The lecture will conclude with an open-ended discussion to touch base on any questions Uh, the lecture may not have addressed. That's this Saturday afternoon from 2 to 3 p.m. at the Quag Wildlife Refuge. To reserve a seat, you can visit quagwildliferefuge.org. Staying in Quag for the weather, looking like a mostly sunny Thursday with a high near 38 degrees Wind chill between 20 and 25 degrees, breezy, with a west wind, 22 to 25 miles per hour, gusting as high as 39, to uh, mostly clear tonight with a low around 29 degrees. Wind chill values 
between 20 and 25 west wind, 9 to 15 miles per hour. Right now it's 35 degrees. We're keeping it going with sun tracks. We'll lead you into the NPR news break with some sun to soil and some soil tracks in honor of Rich Olson Harbich's brand new book, Sun, Sea, Soil, Wine. Um, kicking it off with a local cover of the of House of the Rising Sun by Nina, etc. The Beach Boys, Velvet Underground, Smash Mouth, and Violent Femmes in your immediate listening future. You're listening to WLIWFM News You Can Trust, music you love on 88.3 FM throughout eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in central and western Suffolk County, streaming online to wherever you may be at WLIW.org slash radio.
listening to WLIWFM, Long Island's only local NPR radio station.
Singing. 
shift is soaked with the tears because the baby's life has been revoked. The bond is broke, I'm so choke up and focus on the close up, Mr. Wizard can't reform. No God, like Hocus Pocus, so don't sit back, kick back and watch the world get bushwhacked. It is not advised to walk on the sun, (laughs) nor possible. WLIWFM is your place for local music. Tracks like Is That the Sun? from James O'Malley's Tales to Tell of 2009. Bob Marley and the Whalers on deck. Is that the sun? Is that the sun I see picking out? Feels like it's been gone a week. Is that the sun? 
sun shining down on me Is that the clouds breaking up just a bit clearing out So the world could be lit by the sun The sun shining down on me Sitting on the beach in the rain's no fun Luckily I'm sitting with my loving one Packing up and getting ready to run And here comes the sun Is that a smile on your face I see? Is that a smile on your face for me or for the sun? The sun shining down on me
Who else saw the story about Ruth Gottesman, longtime professor at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, making tuition free for all students going forward with her billion dollar donation? Unbelievable story. Incredible human being. Philanthropy at its finest. Sun is shining. That's Bob Marley and the Whalers. I got Nikki Lane's Send the Sun from the Highway Queen record. Sun is here from the band Sun. I might hop over that. I just, I want to play Led Zeppelin. I want to play Kurongvin and Leon Bridges. So much I want to do, so little time to do it. Enjoy the music. It's all because of you and your donations to WLIWFM. Dot O-R-G. Go. 
Real talk. When I was pregnant with Harmony, I came so close to doing a tap version of that track with Ryan, uh, as would have been taught by Anita Boyer, who invited us to do a, a tap dance uh, and learn it for probably for our fabulous variety show. All right, I'm, I have to hop over, son. I'm going to play Les Zeppelin. I, I've got it pretty much mapped out. Uh, Kruangbin and Leon Bridges, Texas Sun on deck. I've got a lot of secret tracks, uh, including Zach Bryan, Uncle Mountain, Cage the Elephant, making room for Jukebox, The Ghost, The Sun from the Everything Under the Sun record of 2010, and Sun and Soil from the self-titled record of Small Town Artillery of 2017. This is Les Zeppelin's self-titled record of 2007. Recorded in the same studio that Led Zeppelin recorded once upon a time. This is Winter Sun on WLIWFM. Sun goes down Texas sun Say you want 
hit the highway while the engine was. Well, come on, roll with me till the sun goes down. The Texas sun. Caressing you from Fort Worth to Amarillo well, Come on, roll with me to the sun dips low Texas sun Texas sun, oh girl When I'm far from home, the cold winds blow. Stuck out somewhere, folks I don't Cause you keep me nice and you keep me warm. Wanna feel you warm can't wait to get back there again. Texas sun. Adding to the secret tracks, tracks by the Tattered Rhapsodies and David Benjamin Blower, bunny hopping past Zach Bryan to play uh, Jukebox, The Ghost. Interesting track. I just want to hear it again. This is The Sun on WLIWFM. Small town artillery on deck. Everything under the sun is getting burned. It's all gonna 
Some they might be giants. There's cheek face. I feel some like influences from so many artists. Oh, nope, Uncle Mountain. You're a secret track. Hot Sun from Uncle Mountain's Miles of Skyline. You can find it on the playlist posted at wliw.org/radio. This is Sun and Soil from Small Town Artillery, leading you into the NPR news break with Soil from. James Spates Riverside Record Crazy mushroom that runs underneath the earth for miles Connected by a spider web of endless root systems It's one of the largest living organisms in the world
Sending that one out to our guest this morning, Richard Olson Harbich, the longest tenured winemaker on the North Fork and the author of Sun, Sea, Soil, Wine, leading you into the NPR News break with James Spate. Big ups to William Riss Gallery and all of our underwriters, supporters, of Long Island's what only NPR radio station. Not so many needles next time. WLIWFM. Try a few leaves, you'll do just fine if you look a little more like me. Or the sycamore to the blackberry vine. Just let go your thorns, grow your branches tall like mine. We'd all be better if you looked a little more like me.
Why do you hide in the shade, come forth and show your colors proudly?